Welcome to another episode of Studies in Empathy, a Cleveland Clinic podcast exploring empathy and patient experience. I'm your host, Adrian Boise, Chief Experience Officer here at the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio. And I'm very pleased to have Dr. Amy Windover here, who is the Director of Curriculum and Faculty Development for the Center of Excellence in Healthcare Communication. That's quite a mouthful. Uh, welcome. Thank so you. So thrilled to have you. Thank you for having me. So tell me a little bit more about who you are and how you came to be in this role. Well, I'm a clinical health psychologist, and as part of my training and uh, fellowship, was asked to work on communication skills training for medical students at another uh, medical school. So when I came here to the clinic, they were just starting with the Lerner College of Medicine, and that was a wonderful opportunity to kind of expand my role in that area. And then you actually approached me at a later point in time when there was really a lot of interest and attention to wanting to support staff in the way of improving communication. So what Amy is alluding to is there's actually this really great story about I kept hearing about this amazing communication skills expert in the medical school named Amy. And after months and months of hearing how spectacular she was, I finally decided to go and meet her as I became tasked to go look at communication skills training for staff physicians. And so I made this appointment in her office and I showed up. <laughs> I remember we had some conversation. I was like, do you think you'd be willing to help me try to figure this out? And she was like, who are you? It was really, <laughs> that's essentially how it went. Uh, and then, of course, later we were so blessed uh, when you finally took charge of what was going on. So it was really a, a funny first start. All right. So what, what's the difference, though? Because I often, when we talk about communication in healthcare, I hear people say, oftentimes they're really talking about communication for med students, right? We'll just train the med students over there and then we'll be all set for the rest of their career. Talk to me about the difference though in your experience between training medical students in relationship-centered communication and practicing staff physicians. Well, that's the beauty of what the Cleveland Clinic really asked you and your team to do is to develop resources to support staff physicians because it really hadn't been done that way and supported at such a high level before. In medical school, for several years, they had really been working hard to integrate more and more communication skills training, recognizing that it is the most common medical procedure that a physician will ever perform. And the value just is exponential. Mm -hmm. And so a lot more time and attention is paid in medical education to that training. And the students, you know, love it, and it really resonates with them. They're new, and they're, they're very much focused on why they got into medicine in the first place and their call. And so it just, it works for them. It resonates with them, and they get really involved, and they love it because it's also some of the first opportunities they have to interact with actual patients. Mm -hmm. Whereas staff, you know, they've been doing it 20, sometimes 30 or more years, and they're actually quite effective already with their communication, so much so that it's more unconscious. They're able to kind of function on autopilot in terms of their communication anyway. And it allows them to be more efficient in other ways and effective in other ways. So the idea that they would be asked to take a foundational <laughs> communication skills course yeah. um, could be 
rather upsetting uh, or annoying, to say the least. Yeah, no, I, <laughs> and I know you encountered a lot of well, that. I remember when we started. So the, the history here is seven or eight years ago, after we had gone transparent with communication scores across the enterprise, mm -hmm. we felt very strongly that you also needed to have tools to help people get better. So it wasn't just about transparency or shaming around the scores. It was, we're here to help. Right. But at the time, we didn't have any tools, right? And we, we really advocated to say, you can't highlight people's blind spots without having tools for them. And so the organization really made a commitment through the Office of Patient Experience and the development of the center to create mm -hmm. those tools. So some things I reflected on, though, when we were early in the journey is there was a lot of, I would say, reticence on the part of staff physicians to engage in the training, sometimes because they were already effective or thought they were already mm -hmm. effective. And others said, well, this is something the med students need, I don't need. Mm -hmm. We navigated that, as I recall, by trying to say all boats can elevate, right? We didn't right. just take the least effective communicators, at least in the patient's eyes, and try to raise them. We tried to raise everybody. Did you think, looking back now, that that was an effective strategy? Absolutely, because I wouldn't want to imagine a course where people who were all quote unquote poor scores, which is an unfortunate way to look at folks anyway, but where they would all be in a course together trying to improve communication. That's right. Giving feedback to yeah. each other doesn't make any sense. No. And, and there really are a lot of people doing a lot of effective things in terms of communication. Why not leverage that expertise and really bring it out in the day? So as facilitators, if we're doing our job right, we aren't teaching them a lot of things they don't already know. Rather, we are just bringing attention to and pulling out the experiences and best practices from the group. So it was surprising to me, though, how many people came in skeptical and were so quickly willing to transform the way they think about communication and really participate actively and work with the skills and take their communication up a notch regardless of how good it already was. My respect for staff physicians grew immensely yeah. watching them. I mean, they want to be the best they can be in every way, shape, and form. That's right. So let's pause there for a second because I think this is a really interesting point. Oftentimes I hear there's sometimes a perception that physicians don't care, we're just too rushed, so we're just rushing through things, and how we communicate, we're not spending any time thinking about, and it sounds like you were quite surprised to find the opposite. So I'm curious, tell me a little bit more about that, but also what do you think we did that was effective in getting them engaged? Because although most walked in, I think, willing to learn, there were some that probably didn't. So mm -hmm. what environment did we create? What what did we intentionally do to make sure that we got them engaged? Well, intentional, I think, is a really important word because we wanted to create a safe, supportive environment where we we did acknowledge their experience, their expertise. We weren't seeing them as blank slates walking in and we were going to fill them up as, you know, sages on the stage and have them walk out. We really did want to make it learner-centered where they have experiences and expertise that we all can learn from and share. We wanted to model all the skills as best we could as facilitators to those participants. And at this time, it was mainly physicians, but it's expanded beyond that. And a large part of that, I think, was 
being empathic, being present in the moment and just being able to respond to their thoughts and emotions, allow them to voice their feelings about things and hear them and reflect them in a way that they know that we heard and understood them. So let's talk concretely about that though, because I think there are some really interesting things we learned as we were doing it that we implemented very early in the course. I'll tee up some examples that I can think of and then please add your own color. Number one, we fed them, right? Especially for residents, there's, there's no more time to sit down and actually eat. And although it sounds kind of silly, for some, particularly the emergency residents we trained, I remember there was this profound sort of notice that we all took of how much they actually ate. Yeah, I don't think they were stopping to eat. We would also ask questions real early in the course around who was on call last night to try to understand where people truly were walking in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I know there's a variety of exercises that we do to understand have you had this course before? How do you feel about it? Do you hate it? Do you think you're really good? You know, to understand where people were so we could figure out where we actually needed to go. Talk to me about yeah, other because observations. Because we were bringing in people from all over the enterprise. We wanted a diversity of specialty in each day. We kept the, the course sizes very small to no more than 12 participants, again, to help create the safety and really be able to focus on the individuals as people and to help give them an opportunity to connect more with one another. I think the meals were important so that they had time to make those connections with people, although it was very foreign to many of them. And I think they found that initially somewhat uncomfortable Mm -hmm. until they realized we weren't expecting anything but just food and conversation. Yeah, before we got started. Before we got started. The other things that we did, we do warm-ups. So, you know, oftentimes people refer to these things as icebreakers and really recognizing that it's something we have to warm up to these things. There are some extroverts out there that can jump into the day and just make themselves vulnerable and learn a lot. That's certainly not me. And I think the majority of people, we need time to warm up. And so being able to share a little bit of who we are in ways that don't feel vulnerable can, and then moving to the more vulnerable can be helpful. That's right. So warm-ups can be really superficial. Do you like ice cream or cake? Mm-hmm. And then as you're highlighting, they can progress in terms of their weightiness mm-hmm. to things like how many of you saw a patient die or had to tell a family that their loved one had died over right. the last week, over the last month. Yeah. Um, so any other examples you want to highlight for our audience of a warm-up you think is highly effective? I think one of the warm-ups that we used the most or have found the most effectiveness from has to do with feedback and asking them to what extent are they comfortable receiving helpful feedback and they'll stand on a continuum from not at all to bring it on, the more the better. And we get a lot of interesting, helpful ideas and then we ask them to line up along that same same continuum in terms of the degree to which they are comfortable giving helpful feedback. Hmm. The reason I found that exercise so helpful is a large part of what we're doing in the day is sharing feedback with mm-hmm. one another. And it, we are also offering them structure that they may try that has some evidence to support its efficacy in helping people actually make changes based on our feedback. And so even for people who are excellent in communication and 
weren't really open to the course. We were giving them a common language and a structure to provide feedback, and it would improve their teaching, for example. And that was something that everybody really resonated with. Mm. So it, it just allowed us to acknowledge an elephant in the room about the day that we are going to do hands-on skills practice and that we want to be sensitive to all the different perspectives about giving and receiving feedback and just take it up a notch wherever we are. Yeah. So two things strike me. One is this idea that I think in healthcare or in learning environments, assume that everybody always wants feedback. Mm -hmm. And I I have some strong feelings about that. You've had a few examples where it was not appreciated. Sometimes feedback is welcome, but we should be asking, right? right? How comfortable are you receiving and giving and around what? Right, because the more targeted the feedback is, often the more helpful. So that's fascinating. And the other idea is around really attending to where they are coming in in terms of their learning goals Mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. Okay, so for context, you know, at this point, you've probably trained in totality eight, nine thousand clinicians, including staff, physicians, APPs, MPs, etc., and some of those here, some across the country and the globe for that matter. What do you think in all of those conversations and all of those trainings is the biggest barrier to empathy for our clinicians? I come back to uh, time and task pressures. And even one step further, sometimes feeling as though how do they have anything more to give when they feel like they're already giving enough and who has their back? So you know, I think for us to, as human beings, be able to do which is what is already hardwired in us, right? Being empathic, being compassionate, we need to feel that from other people, uh, whether it's our leaders or from our peers or from, you know, it doesn't really matter. And it's not always there. Even more so, I would say, while we need it from others, we need it just as much, if not more, from ourselves. And while there's a whole lot of focus right now on empathy for others, empathy for self sometimes still is seen as, oh, well, that's, that's really a soft thing, and that's self-indulgent. And in reality, if we don't take care of ourselves, if we don't convey empathy and compassion toward ourselves, I think we are less capable of doing that for others and, and less able to to accept it or receive it when we get it from others, because oftentimes it isn't that that empathy doesn't exist from others, it's that we're just not open to it. Mm. We don't trust it, maybe. Hmm. Doesn't feel genuine. So I think there's work on, on all sides of it. And in this climate, you know, with burnout being here, we found in research over you know, 35% of physicians are experiencing burnout. I know for the same time frame, it's over 54% uh, across the country. And so some would say, oh, that's really great. I'm sorry, but 35% is not acceptable. We can and should do so much better. And I'm really uh, grateful for the resources that are being devoted to staff experience and caregiver experience and patient experience because they all overlap and flow together in many ways, uh, feed off of one another, so that we can continue to reduce that level of burnout. And I think some of the communication skills training courses that we have and will continue to offer, and especially some of the empathy skill building that we have to offer, can 
help everyone um, be more self-empathic or compassionate and empathic toward others. A couple thoughts running through my head are you, as you're talking. One, when I think about barriers to empathy that we learned from training the thousands of clinicians are that most physicians and clinicians are actually trying to do their best at expressing empathy. It's not always this inherent deficit, but their way of expressing empathy often is not the most effective. Can you think of a time or a story or an example of that? I mean, I, I think of somebody saying, well, don't worry about that. It's going to be it's going to be okay. This only happens 1% of the time, which is a nice reassuring statement, but not necessarily an empathic statement or an attempt at a reassuring statement. Right. right? And all the person hears is I'm in the 1%. I must be, you know, (laughs) that's right. So, so morphing some of that language. I don't know if you can think of any other examples. Things like, uh, you know, don't worry. We're going to take care of you you know, it's the don't worry, mm-hmm. or I understand. Yeah, you know, that the, was a the big The proverbial, one. you don't understand, right? It can actually really trigger a patient to feel less cared for. Mm-hmm. Even the word, I'm sorry, it's, it's challenging. There are times where we can genuinely apologize. Certainly we need to apologize when there is need for service recovery. When there isn't a need for service recovery, I think we run the risk of triggering people. Um, by saying that, because oftentimes we say, I'm sorry, when we want everyone to just be okay with us or not Mm -hmm. be at odds with one another. And it doesn't feel genuine. First of all, I'm using the word I, right? I'm sorry for you. So it can come off patronizing. Mm -hmm. And there's research that suggests this beautiful study that was done that suggests that I wish statements can be just as if not more effective, especially in delivering bad news. So I, I wish we had better alternatives. Uh, can sound better. Yeah, those are some great examples of, I think, what we saw. I would have to say we did a video called Words Matter that is available um, publicly on YouTube that really highlights the types of things we say and how they can be helpful and how they can be hurtful. And it's through the lens of actual caregivers who work in healthcare who have been patients themselves. And so it's something that can be maybe helpful for people if they're looking for resources. So is that it though? I love that you brought that up because oftentimes I feel like empathy doesn't have its true depth until unfortunately sometimes we've suffered ourselves. That it takes on a new depth for people when that happens, when your mom becomes a patient, when you become a patient, when your child is a patient, then the light bulb goes off. But I don't wish that upon anybody. I don't want them to have to have those experiences. What's your reflection on that? I mean, do you think there's anything as equally powerful? Is there some other experience or light bulb that goes off for people that that makes them? Is it experiencing what it feels like to be, to have those empathic statements land on you? That people sometimes? can't see my face and my <laughs> quandary here. I struggle with this so much because I do think experience does play a large role in our ability to empathize and it expands our perspective. Mm. At the same time, we know that the brain has mirroring pathways and mentalizing pathways. And so there's affective and cognitive empathy. And 
certainly we can experience affective empathy with the mirror pathways. So I, I remember when I was in high school and fighting with my family in front of my extended family, I had a two-year-old nephew and I you know, was really mad and slammed the door for a fact and really wanted to make a point and he just started bawling. And I remember thinking in my high school self, yes, <laughs> he's on my side. But he was just responding to the emotion that I was bringing and mm -hmm. felt feeling bad for me and my mm -hmm. tears. All mirror neurons, not helpful to him at the time, I might add, mm -hmm. right? So we have to be mindful of how those mirror neurons can cause us to offload our emotions onto others um, at times unintentionally and unhelpful ways or for for understanding. Mentalizing pathways, though, require us to have a little more context. So, you know, someone might tell me they're anxious, but if I can't see it, if I can't understand why they would be anxious, it's going to be harder for me to have a sense of what that experience is like. That's right. And those are also stronger, I saw in studies, if you know the person. Oh, right. Yes. If you, oh yes. If I watch something happen to you, and you were a stranger to me, versus I watched something happen to you, and I had some context of a relationship or connection, the brain's neurobiological reaction is different. And that's where I uh, really am a strong believer that empathy, and we're seeing so much research supporting the use of empathy, is wonderful and invaluable in the context of a personal connection or relationship, even a healthcare relationship that may be a little different from, say, friendship, makes it exponentially more powerful. Mm. It all goes back to relationships as we've talked. Yes. <laughs> so you talked about self-empathy, and I want to recognize, though, that a lot of healthcare providers, clinicians, caregivers are not the best at actually caring for themselves. And everybody says it, and we all talk about resilience and how we should go to yoga but what have you found either for yourself or seen in others? What tips do you think are, are great examples of self-empathy? What does that look like in your experience? I think some of the best examples, it sounds so cliche to say self-affirmation. And then when I finally was forced to um, do what I preached, uh, I found them to be really effective and helpful. And one of mine was simply saying, you know, I am perfectly imperfect and I'm, I'm okay with that. I'm worthy. I am a valuable human being. And when things come up, being able to say those things and own that for myself uh, actually lessens the chance of my unloading emotion onto other people. Um, and allows me to move forward in a way that can be more helpful to contributing to my team at work or my family at the home. I also have found that exercise is really valuable, but not everything. And the other piece is just being able to have some time to center our thoughts. And you know, I know mindfulness is kind of a hot word right now, and yet uh, I have found being able to pull out my Calm app and go through just that 10 minute brief meditation in the morning is extremely beneficial and changes the day a lot. The other practice I have uh, with a friend of mine is we exchange uh, three things that we are grateful for at the end of the day by text hmm. and just kind of hold each other accountable to that. Uh, so 
those kinds of things are really helpful. And every now and then we change up like, okay, my, my gratitudes are getting a little generic. I'm going to start being grateful for people at work or what they're doing at work, or I'm going to be more grateful for things about my family, you know, just to try to, again, expand our perspective. But if we don't have time to just be present and really allow our, ourselves to be open to our thoughts, it's hard to even know what to be self-empathic or compassionate toward. That's right. That's a great point. I love the gratitude, the three things. I know that's something Cheryl Sandberg talks about as well, this idea of just a simple gratitude. And um, we do it with my kids before bedtime. So. Oh, it's a wonderful thing with kids. Yeah. yeah. We could go on and on talking. What one thing do you think all of our listeners who are trying to build better experiences should be doing? to really transform the patient experience or maybe the human experience, which we've spent some time talking about? It's such a big question. I think if I were to say one thing at this point, it would be, again, really focusing on modeling what we want other people to practice. And that's not easy. And being willing to be vulnerable and transparent about when it's working and when it's not, and to be able to support one another in that. I also think that we need to keep going with the research that supports these things so that our organizations are able and willing to continue to support these things financially. You know, we have this motto, patients first at the clinic, and it is so helpful to just use that as our kind of guide. I know people refer to it as our North Star and, and it's memorable. Unfortunately, you know, as we've learned, there are many people that then feel like, well, then I'm second. And in their minds, it's almost as if they're last. Mm. And I loved a phrase that I think it was somebody in marketing came up with of patients first, caregivers always. I thought, oh, it's just beautiful because it really does speak to how we need to be taking care of one another so that we can take care of patients. And I know our organization is making a very concerted effort to do more of that and really focus more on teaming and civility and teams and collaborations and being more vulnerable. Yeah. Um, I want to end on a note of gratitude for you. I know a lot of your work most recently has connected the work we've done in relationship-centered communication and empathy. You've expanded that portfolio of resources to end of life and oh, how do you set boundaries with patients and opiates and how do anesthesiologists express empathy? And it's really been an arsenal of tools for our people. And you've tied that to meaning and burnout and significant evidence-based work to demonstrate the impact. And I'm really grateful that after you kicked me out of your office the first time we met, no, uh, no. <laughs> that, that wasn't the end uh, and really just the beginning. So thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Amy Wendover. This concludes Studies in Empathy podcast. You can find additional podcast episodes on our website, my.clevelandclinic.org slash podcasts. Subscribe to Studies in Empathy podcast on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. Please join us again soon.